Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, and wrestling fans of all ages. This is Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax, the host of Classic Wrestling Memories. And we got a jam-packed show. We're actually covering a couple subjects here, a couple of tributes. We're going to talk about the career of Don Kernodal, who passed away earlier this year, and another man who passed away recently, Del Wilkes, a.k.a. The Patriot, a.k.a. The Trooper. And we'll talk about his life and career. But first, let me introduce uh, my co-host from a nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. We've talked about we always have to do these episodes with a heavy heart. Obviously, I don't think Seth really remembers Don Cronodal because he was a little before you started watching on a full basis. But you know the name. And, of course, we'll go over his tag team run with one of your all-time favorites, Sergeant Slaughter. is probably the peak of Don's career. And then Dell. Now, that's right in when you were a fan. You know, his big-time run in the WWE, and, and we'll go over his his whole career. Uh, a little bit like the Wahoo McDaniel episode, I knew Dell personally. We were trained by the same guy. So we'll kind of end the episode with me telling you some of my personal Dell stories. Don, we'll, we'll talk, I'll probably give more fans' point of view, because he was a huge star here in the Mid-Atlantic Territory, so he was definitely a major part of my fandom and, and my inspiration to want to become a wrestler. Before we move on to the tribute, I'm going to call an audible here on Seth and kind of okay. blindside you, Seth. I don't, I don't mean to do that. But I think probably a lot of the people that are listening to Classic Wrestling Memories know that the second half of the third season of Dark Side of the Ring on Vice has, has just recently dropped. You and me have not talked a lot about it in the past. I know you've watched some. Have you watched the first episode yet this season, Seth? I've seen scenes of it. I haven't seen it from beginning to end, though. Oh, okay. But you have watched other episodes and past seasons, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm, I'm very yeah. familiar with how it, how it goes. It's you know, one of those right. almost kind of like true crime reality shows. Yeah, I, I, and quite frankly, as a guy who's a little bit jaded because it's about something I'm passionate about, and sometimes exposing, as you like to call it, the underbelly. <laughs> Is that what mm-hmm. you call it, the dark underbelly? Yeah, CD underbelly. <laughs> of the yeah. wrestling business. Yeah. It, 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 I have mixed emotions about it. Of course, the first episode, the second half of this uh, of season three, was the infamous Plane Ride from Hell, which took place in 1992, Oh, no, sorry, 2002. So that's right there at the at the end of kind of where we consider the cutoff for, for classic wrestling memories. Mm-hmm. It happened like what right right after Vince bought WCW and ECW, I believe was was yeah. was the timeline. Yeah, that was 2002, that. 2003. Obviously, that episode has probably stirred up a lot of controversy. Kind of shocked, I guess, that it is so controversial because I've always felt that that was that was a pretty well documented what all happened at flight. It, had you not even as a fan. And that era, even back then, heard about what had happened? Oh, yeah. So there are several instances, and it's basically just people being people being the wrestlers, Stupid. WWE wrestlers. Yeah. <laughs> basically, probably having very little sleep and consuming alcohol and just going crazy because of it, not in a good way. Right, right. Now, I guess the biggest thing to come out of it has been these allegations that have been made by one of the flight attendants who did not work for the WWE towards Ric Flair. I don't think we're shocking any of our listeners and and, and exclaiming both you and I are huge fans of Rick. I don't think that would surprise anybody. Do you? <laughs> no, no. Now, this has gone so far as, you know, it was so controversial on what the allegations she made against Flair were that Flair has very subtly removed from WWE programming, much the way Hogan did when there was the controversy with him in the, during the Gawker case. Tommy Dreamer and his comments about what happened and somewhat in defense of Ric Flair has had Tommy from Impact Wrestling. I don't know if that's a firing or if it was suspension. They haven't really said, have they? I think he was released, and I know he co-hosted the 
uh, a podcast, I think, with uh, Bully Ray, and he got yeah, that, uh, that was a busted open radio that like Dave Lagreca and them, and I think Mark Henry's on that as well, if I remember right. I believe so. Yeah, I think he's gone from that as well. Well, but it's my personal and, and do not, like I said, I blindsided Seth, so do not have any hatred towards classic wrestling memories or Seth. There's a reason we put a disclaimer at the end of all of our podcasts that the words of the host are not necessarily reflection of the of, of the podcast as a whole. Person, mm-hmm. crazy train, as Jonathan Bowling. Flair's been pretty open about his extremely inappropriate behavior through his 40-plus year career in the wrestling business. It's fairly well documented by Flair himself, and this has come up in legal cases before. Flair was known to expose himself, okay? With that being said, I have never nor has it ever been brought up before in any case that I know of Ric Flair exposing himself in the presence of children or teenagers. Have you ever heard that? I have not, no. And that isn't claimed here. These are all adults. Even the flight attendants are all adults. Okay, that's the first thing. So is that inappropriate? 1,000% inappropriate. I wouldn't do it. But, I mean, it isn't like Flair's run from it is what I'm saying. He's been very open about that in his past and about some of his lack of good judgment or good taste. And uh, it's actions like that, let's be honest, led to why he's probably divorced five times too. But as far as her allegations that he tried to force himself on her, I have issue with that. I'm not saying the woman's lying. So like I said, if you have a problem with it, cancel me, send me your 10,000 word blog post. Just in my opinion, in my interactions with Flair and based on his history, Ric Flair's never had to force himself on any woman. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. not who Ric Flair, in fact, it's almost anti- antithetical to what he would do because of what he perceives the Nature Boy gimmick to be. Nature Boy doesn't have to force himself on anybody. You want to be with Nature Boy because you are because he is the Nature Boy. But that's just my opinion. Like I said, if you have a problem with that, send your hate mail to crazytrain underscore JB at Twitter. This is not the opinion of Classic Wrestling Memories or of Seth. Whatever happened, my understanding, and it's brought up in the documentary, that th- there was a settlement that was arranged uh, by McDivitt and the WWE's attorneys with this, this and other members of the flight crew. That doesn't mean that something didn't happen, right? It just means, at least my understanding, I'm not a lawyer. When you sign a settlement like that, you're basically neither side's admitting to guilt or the truth. They're just saying, this matter's closed and we're not going to discuss it anymore. Isn't that your understanding of what a settlement basically is? Yeah, and usually there's some sort of agreement in writing when that happens. Right. So I'm not saying the woman's lying. I'm not saying she's not lying. I'm just saying I have a hard I I'm having a hard time believing complete fullness. Now, perception and reality are off the two. She might have perceived things a certain way or... What one person finds offensive or a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? A violation of their personal space, another person might not find it as, you know what? Mm-hmm. So you've also got that. But enough of that. I, I'm looking forward to this half of this. They've, they've already laid out all the different episodes because two particular episodes are going to be very personal for me. They're going to do a whole episode on Luna Vachon, which Luna was absolutely one of my most favorite people I ever got to know in the wrestling. She was uh, a unique talent, a unique human being by her own admission, had some, unfortunately that led to, to her untimely and early death. But I'd like to see how, how they cover that and who all they talk to. I mean, based on the, on the trailer, they're going to talk to Medusa a lot. And Ducey and her had did have a long-running feud when they both broke into the business. So that kind of makes sense. And they renewed that rivalry multiple times across the multiple promotions, including WWE. And the other one I'm going to find interesting is they're going to do a whole episode on Chris Canyon. Another guy, I was not as close to Chris as I was to Luna, but another guy I, I, I loved with the unfortunate uh, circumstances surrounding his death and what I do for a living now. Looking back, I've had many times where I've thought, 
how did I not see and others of us not see the, 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 the warning signs of what was coming with Chris. But I think especially modern day fans, maybe maybe you're not familiar with Chris's talent and in-ring style, would be extremely impressed by what I mean, they call him the innovator of offense. I think in many ways, Chris's in-ring style was probably, what, 20 years ahead of its time and is more in line with what, what you would see nowadays. Do you agree with that, Seth? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely, especially some of his takedowns. Right, right. And, and the way he transitioned in using high-impact moves away from the, the standard punches and kicks that had been the – or chain wrestling that had been the, the norm for, what, 70 years at that point? So it'll be interesting. Probably going to be a little bit controversial. It looks, based on the trailers and also – I've talked to a person about this. Jimmy Mitchell, the Sinister Minister, it was, of course, very close to Chris. They both kind of broke into the business together down at Moolah's in Columbia, South Carolina. So I think Chris was already wrestling, and she polished him up, much the way Susan Green polished me up. But Jimmy was started by Moolah. So they had a very, very troubled But it will be very nice to Jimmy's take on it. I know Jimmy very well. Another one of my favorite people in the wrestling business. I, 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 what's gonna, I'm going to find most interesting about that is it is such a personal and intimate subject matter for Jimmy. And Jimmy is so effective at playing that character of, well, essentially the devil in his wrestling persona. It will be very interesting to see how much candid stuff they get on camera. Because I think it's going to shock people at how sweet and caring and intelligent a person James Mitchell is when they see this. So I think it's going to be in such a contrast to who they think he is because of the mystique and the, his ability in his on-screen persona, I think this could be very eye-opening, just personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that dissimilar from the way I talk about how you meet Ivan Koloff. He was so much not like anything like mm-hmm. an on-screen character. You're like, whoa, are you interested in watching either of those or any of the ones that are going to be left on the uh, season? I, yeah, yeah. I've, I've gotten behind on my viewing of the show, but yeah, there, there's definitely stuff coming up that I'm, that I'm going to want to check out. I would think Chris Canyon being mostly a WCW guy and you being an avowed WCW fan in that era are, are going to be very intimately knowledgeable about his in-ring career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've said um, it before and I'll say it again. At the time, the mask that he wore as Mortis was one of the coolest masks I've ever seen in wrestling. I agree, yeah. And, and that, 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 that was when... That half-skull-looking mask, that was so cool. Yeah, and that was when James Mitchell was... His persona in WCW was what a J- James Vandenberg. And really, he was like an evil lawyer, basically. <laughs> right, right. He he didn't have the pointed eyebrows or or the the rings and right. stuff like that. You'd think that that he had later, but the the demeanor was still there. Yeah, well, he originally started in the Indies around here in the Carolinas as Daryl Van Horn, which of course was the name of the of the Jack Nicholson slash Satan character from Witches of Eastwick. So he had the James Vandenberg look. But he was bringing more of the sinister minister traits in those days. And that was the same character, I believe, that he used on Smoky Mountain when he first kind of made it popped up on the radar on a more national. When Jimmy Cornette brought him in to manage the mummy. So Jimmy, if you watch his evolution from Daryl Van Horn to James Vandenberg to Sinister Minister, I think you see the full evolution that is often uh, a personality in the wrestling business from this kernel of idea of what they are and what they want to be to what they finally eventually become and become known for. So I think that's kind of what you're saying too. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Well, anyway, I just want to get off that. It looks like it's going to be good. I, I'm pretty sure we've talked about the Moolah episode. I think it was what season one, the, the fabulous Moolah episode was. Yeah. I think it was the um, season finale of season one. Right. And I believe we talked about the road warriors episode. 
which was season two. So we've talked about Dark Side of the Ring before. As a, as a guy who was in the business and still has a lot of friends and contacts in the business, I'm always interested on how much and how close they get to the truth because this is a documentary and you often get individuals in the business who were not known for our openness, being more open and candid than it normally would be. And uh, so that's why I look, I'm like, legitimately, I'm looking, okay, how much are they going to kayfabe? That's really how I approach them, especially when it is a subject matter like Mula or like Luna that I'm very intimately knowledgeable about myself. You know, I don't, don't know that much about the plane ride from hell. I know what was reported in the dirt sheets. I know a few things from some of the guys that were on the flight that I've talked to about it, but they're, they weren't even very open. So anyway, I don't know. You want to take a break now and then come back and start the trip, or do you want to go ahead and roll into Don Cronodal right now? Yeah, let's do a quick break, and when we come back, we will uh, dive into Don Cronodal. This is Classic Wrestling Memories, and we'll be right back. Are you looking for a gaming-themed podcast? Then check out You Just Got Fragged. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of gaming enthusiasts as they discuss news and accomplishments in the gaming world, and of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at YouJustGotFragged.com, part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family. Sergeant Slaughter and Don Canola. You saw some people out here already, Jack and Jerry Briscoe, that could be after that championship. That's exactly right. You know one thing, Mr. Crockett, if these belts could speak right here, you know what they'd say? They'd say, you know, Sergeant Slaughter and Don Canola are the best tag team in the world. The best tag team in the world, and no other wrestlers in the world are good enough to wear us. We're the best in the world, and what we're doing around here is making a few examples. We made an example out of a little stupid Indian a few weeks ago. And I want to say one thing else. Sergeant Slaughter and Don Canola is going on a making example crusade, and we're going to be making a lot of examples around here. And if you don't believe what I say, you just tell them what you're talking about, Sergeant Slaughter. You know, every time I see what we did to Jay Youngblood, it really gives me a feeling of greatness. It makes me feel good. Every time I pass by a cemetery, I think of Jay Youngblood. And any of you wrestlers out there who want to tag up and go against the World Tag Team Champions, you look at that film. And if you're excited about getting that ring against Sergeant Slaughter and Don Canelo, you're about as hypocritical as a funeral director and a, trying to act sad at a $10,000 funeral. Because we are the greatest tag team combination that ever wore these belts. And like Don Canelo says, if these belts could talk, they'd tell you what's happening. There's nobody going to stop us. There's nobody here that can stop us. All right, we are back, Classic Wrestling Memories. This is volume 39, and we're going to start our biography slash tribute here with the career of Don Kernodal, who really was one of the more popular stars. You were talking Mid-Atlantic before, the Crockett mm-hmm. Territory. That's really where his prime was, right? That's kind of where he, what he's most known for, being in the Carolinas. Yep. Without, without question, without question. Now, the story that I had heard a Big Mac years mm-hmm. was that he had broken in after answering a open challenge from the former Olympic wrestler, Bob Roop. And that, that, that's kind of what got his foot in the door. Now I've heard some measures of differences between that over the years. I mean, obviously mm. the match did happen, but yes. I guess the big question to ask was, was that expected or, or cause he got trained by Gene and Ole Anderson. Did they do the training right. before or after that? After what happened? Little little backup. A little. Bit. Don was from what they call the Piedmont region of North Carolina, where he was born and raised. Same region my mother is from. That is the Greensboro, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, that area of North Carolina, where all the universities are. And 
If you listen to Classic Wrestling Memories, you know the name Raleigh and Greensboro. Those are two of the biggest venues in the Crockett Territory. Greenboro Coliseum, Dorton Arena, and, and Raleigh. So he grew up a huge fan of wrestling, and his fandom of wrestling motivated him to get involved in amateur wrestling in high school, where I believe he was a two-time state champion in high school. He was from Burlington, which is an Alamance County, which is kind of halfway in between Raleigh and Greensboro. And he, he was so good at wrestling that he moved on to wrestle collegiately at a s- small but still Division I university in North Carolina called Elon University, which is in Elon, North Carolina, E-L-O-N. And that is, like I said, it's kind of the same area between uh, Raleigh and uh, Greensboro. And he, he lettered four years there in the heavyweight division. Also got involved in arm wrestling around this time. So we're talking the, the early 70s. And I believe he won the North Carolina state championship in arm wrestling in like the 225 pound weight class in like 71 or 72. But around that time, this would have been the early to mid seventies would have been right when George Scott had come in as the booker. And we've talked about that many times, how George was switching the territory over to a singles focused territory, as opposed to a tag team focused territory. Bob Roop, like you said, was a legitimate Olympic level wrestler, a shooter, There's videos on YouTube of him stretching trainees down in Florida. And that's where Bob had the bulk of his run, uh, at least known. Bob was was down. Him and and Hiro Matsuda would stretch guys for Eddie Graham in Florida. But he did work a lot of the territories. And because of Bob's size and his his shooting ability, a, a common angle that bookers would use on Bob when he came into the territory was they would have Bob challenge locals. And if they could last 10 minutes with him, then they'd win a money prize. Uh, there's one famous story. I believe it was in the Tennessee Territory where there was a challenge that went out. He would put somebody in a sugar hold, which is just a, a blanket term for a shoot hold. And that if anybody could escape it, they would get like $1,000. And I think that w- I think that was Jared or maybe Goulas in the Tennessee Territory. And unfortunately, this guy that accepted the challenge was really, really skinny and Bob couldn't hook him right. And the kid, the guy slipped out. And then, I think I said, I think it was Jared or Goulas refused to pay him the money. So it was a real bad PR nightmare, which is why I've always said probably not a good idea for wrestlers to be challenging locals because you just don't know. But regardless, when Bob was here in the territory and George was booking it, that did what every other booker had done. And they were doing it in television. At the time, Crockett's t- syndicated television was the old studio wrestling. It was not the what you would see on the Peacock now of Old Mid-Atlantic where they were filming it at the arenas. It was from the, I think it was the CBS affiliate in Raleigh. At their studios is where they filmed it. And that, that is, of course, how the legendary Bob Cottle got involved in, in wrestling because he was the weekend weatherman on that station. So they borrowed him from the station to be an announcer, and Bob became one of the greatest of all time. But they were doing a challenge when Bob came in the territory this any fan last 10 minutes and Bob was so big and so good. He was usually making these guys quit legitimately tap out, you know, minute or less. Yeah. Seconds but, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But Don solid guy at the time, probably two forty. and he's got that amateur collegiate level knowledge. He's not in collegiate wrestling shape. Cause he's a few years removed from his time in college, but I believe he was working like a warehouse. So it wasn't like he wasn't doing physical labor. So he was young. He was in shape. And he lasted like seven, eight minutes before Bob tapped him out. Yeah, that, that's that, what I had heard was <laughs> Bob still won the match, but instead of being 
uh, submitted in a few seconds or less than a minute, he he lasted eight minutes, which is longer than literally anybody had up to this point. Right. And that impressed Gene and Ole, who were doing the training at the time for the Crockett. So we've talked about before, we would just talk about with Bob. Bob would eventually move on to do that for Eddie Graham in Florida. Very common in the territories, you had a couple of shooters or old timers that would do the training. And if some young guy said, hey, I want to be a wrestler, They'd say, okay, and they come on down to so-and-so, and we'll give you a tryout. And that tryout pretty much involved them running you through up and then beating the crap out of you and sending them on your way. It was a way of protecting the business in that era. And Gene and Ole were the ones that did it here in the Carolinas in the 70s. And they usually did it on Sundays in Charlotte because that was like the, the, the stop on the, on the Crockett Loop on Sundays with Charlotte. That was one of their bigger shows because obviously they're based out of Charlotte. So they, they offered to train Don. And they treated Don just like they treated every other trainee. They ran him till he threw up. Bob or Don admitted many times, man, I threw up three, four times every training session. They make him run those stadium steps inside the Coliseum, and then they get him in the ring. They make him do 500 jumping jacks and 500 Hindu squats until his legs are on fire, and then they'd stretch him. And they did that for several weeks, and he just kept coming back. He just kept coming back. That's how much he wanted it. Yeah, that's how bad he wanted it. He grew up a huge fan. There's a anecdotal story floating out there that I cannot remember the name of the guy who ran the building in Charlotte, but he was like a local promoter for Crockett. And as they're beating the crap out of Don, or I believe Ole's beating the crap out of Don and making him puke, Gene was standing there in, in the empty arena next to the promoter and, and guy that ran the building in Charlotte, and he said, this kid's going to make it. He could just tell right then. So eventually he got trained by them. They started teaching more and more, and then he started taking – bookings on the low end of the car for the Crockett's kind of bleeding over into, into Tennessee because, you know, North Carolina, Tennessee border on each other. And that's how Don got his start. He was a legitimate tough guy with a legitimate amateur background. Did not have the greatest look in the world. We're, and we're talking the era of superstar Billy Graham. So we're beginning to see, you know, the beginnings of the muscle guys in, in, the, in the mid-70s and where the aesthetics becomes extremely important. But you've seen pictures of Don. Don looks like, as you could say, he could win a fight, though, doesn't he? Yeah, he had that kind of football player size. I mean, one, I think you might be able to con- compare him to may- maybe Arn Anderson or somebody like uh, yeah. a Buzz Sawyer or somebody like Yeah, he had the full beard, barrel-chested, no definition, but obviously a thick, strong man. Looked like what he was, a, a small-time college wrestler and guy who worked at a warehouse, a guy you probably didn't want to make mad after he'd had too few too many drinks. And that's kind of how he got his start. And like a lot of guys, would work his way up the card higher and higher to where he started working a lot with a recently brought-in Sergeant Slaughter, who was brought in with a huge monster heel push here in the Carolinas. And since you're a Sarge fan, why don't you go over that little segment of Absolutely. Really, it's what put him on the map, because I know that he was a traveling partner, essentially a gopher for Ric Flair earlier in Flair's career. Oh, yeah. Rick loved loved Don. Rick loved Don. And this is before Flair had even won his first world title. So he his star was still on the rise at this point. So even at that point, Flair was able to kind of teach Don things and he learned from him. But in the early 80s, I think this is circa 82, like you said, uh, he became part of Sergeant Slaughter's, I guess they call it stable now, but it was Sergeant Slaughter's Cobra Corps, and this is Slaughter still as a heel, and we'll talk a little bit more about Sarge uh, later. But the trio, essentially, was Slaughter as the, the leader, so to speak, and Don as uh, Private Kernodal or Private Don, and then a wrestler named Jim Nelson as Private Nelson. Now, that name may not sound 
familiar uh, to people who aren't familiar with this, this time period, but Jim Nelson did go on to wrestle for WWE in the late 80s, tag-teaming with Nikolai Volkov as Boris Zukov. So if you only saw, like I did, I only saw the Boris Zukov incarnation. So when I found out he was an American guy named Jim, you know, I was, <laughs> I, I was a teenager, I think, when I read that, but it just it was mind-blowing for a kid to read. Yeah, and I, and I can't remember if, if Nelson was Jim's real last name. I don't think it was. I think he was trained by Nelson Royal, who was the other old-time shooter that trained guys and beat them up like the Andersons here. And that the, taking the Nelson last name was a was a tribute to his trainer. I think I, yeah. I could be wrong there, but yeah. And, and one of those differences, kind of in real life and uh, personas, because we're going to talk about it a, little, a little bit later. But Nikita Koloff, people, if you hear Nikita Koloff talk normally, he doesn't sound anything like his his wrestling persona. But back to Cobra Corps, it was Nelson and Kernodal that won the Mid Atlantic Tag Team yeah. Championship, was essentially the Crockett's top tag team title. And, regional title they had they yeah. had their version of the world which we've said before morphed into what is now recognized to this day by the wwe as one of their world tag team yep. but yep. we've talked about many times how territories had a top and a secondary title regional title was usually the secondary title right kind, kind of like the u.s title or something like that i guess is right u.s the... title was the main title of the crockets and then the mid-atlantic title was the secondary title for tag team the world tag team title was their main tag team title and then the mid-atlantic tag team champions was their secondary tag team champions and so there, there were baby faces like pork chop cash Iceman king parsons jay youngblood another guy we'll talk about right. in a little bit they were kind of the, the big feuds between these heels and around this time slaughter promoted don cronodal to corporals awfully nice yep. of sarge to do so, and i don't know you think he got the commander in chief which i think would have been reagan at the time to approve that promotion <laughs> But and I don't know if this is what led to the split, but Slaughter and Kernodal turned on Jim Nelson and you kicked him out of the core. And right. uh, about the NWA World Tag Team titles, they were kind of gone for a while, meaning Slaughter and Kernodal. And then they came back claiming to have won a tournament for the NWA World Tag Team titles. In reality, I think it was Ole, it wasn't Ole and Gene, it was Ole and somebody else that were really recognized champions. I want to say Stan Hansen, but... Uh, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, and they just vacated the titles because Stan Hansen... I think that was one of those where Stan just said, I'm going to Japan, and so they... <laughs> right. <laughs> Stan had it was notorious for that, wasn't he? <laughs> Only I don't think he ran over these titles with his truck, but... Uh, <laughs> no, no, I don't think he did. But, I right. mean, Stan had a had a penchant for coming to America, getting titles, and then saying, I'm going back to Japan and making more money, and then just leaving, never dropping the title <laughs> in the process. Right. And, and, hey, look, I'm not saying that disrespecting. I think I've defended my love and respect for Stan Hansen enough to not have to defend or make any statement about that. Well, all I will say to that is, if that kept happening, then is it really Stan's fault that people keep booking him? in the States to win titles. You know? That should also tell you how big a draw he was, that they knew that with his history and they'd still put the belt on him anyways. <laughs> so, but my understanding, Cronodal had done an interview. There's a real nice write-up right after his death by Mike Moon, of course, is a friend of the show. Mike being extremely intimate with the Mid-Atlantic Territory and knowing a lot of the big stars here and developing friendships with him. It was a friend with Don. And did a real nice write-up where Don told the story, or and Mike relates it in this, this tribute article that he wrote, that Don was tagging Sard when that question would come up that, believe me, I know because I've done it myself, every wrestler at some point goes, okay, how can we make some money out of this? <laughs> <laughs> and 
that was when they were riding up and down the roads working the house shows for the Crockett's. And Don admits it was all Sarge's idea that they get a third guy and create the Cobra Corps. Because Dom was kind of doing, at the time, he wasn't doing the military gimmick yet. He was doing just, just a all-American, arrogant, former collegiate wrestler. Yeah, wrestling yeah, a singlet Bob, and the whole Bob nine Roop. yards. Yeah. <laughs> right? He's doing Bob Roop. <laughs> just the Carolina version of it. So that was the impetus for the Cobra Corps and bringing Jim Nelson in. So in real life... Oh, I, well, well, before you go on, one thing I wanted mm-hmm. to add. When when Nelson and, and Kernel, this is a fascinating bit of, of wrestling history. We're talking 1982, okay? As part of pushing them and the Cobra Corps to the top heel slot, now we must remember... At this point, Dusty Rhodes is not taken over as the book for Crockett, but George Scott is no longer the booker either. Do you remember who the booker was at this time for Crockett? Uh, wasn't it Dory? Dory Jr. That's right, Jr. Yeah. And so he wants to get the, the Cobra Corps over as the top heel group. So he sends Jim and Don, and they win the Mid-Atlantic Tag Team titles on, get this, I believe in Toronto on a joint Crockett-WWF co-promotion. Because this would have been back when Jack Tunney was still promoting, right? Exactly. Now, you know, a lot of fans don't know about that. Most modern fans that do like history, their fandom starts with the war between Crockett and and Vince. They don't understand there was a time right before that, you know? Mm -hmm. You know about Bruno's run, and everybody knows about superstar Billy Graham. Everybody knows about Harley in the 70s. There's about that five year from about, what, 78, 79 to about 84 when Dusty takes over the book for the Crockett's. That's kind of, there's a lot of gray and people forget about. That's in this era. The Crockett's and, the, and, and, and WWF were co-running shows in towns like Buffalo and Toronto. And it's one of those tours that Dory sends up Jim Nelson and Don Carnoodle and they beat Porkchop Cash and Jay Youngblood for the Mid-Atlantic. And they come back as the tag team, Mid-Atlantic tag team champions. And I believe at the time, at that time, Sarge was in a feud with somebody over the U.S. title, which, of course, was the top singles title here in the, in the Carolina. But that would lead to where I think you're going to next. Go ahead. Right. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. You, so kicking out in, Jim Nelson. So in real life, Ole and Stan Hansen were stripped of the titles because Hansen went to Japan, but they silently put them on Slaughter and Kernodal. And then Sarge and Kernodal went onto TV claiming to have won them in a tournament. Now, what's hysterical about this claim to anybody who knows history... Was it Rio de Janeiro? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think it was in, actually, but... That, was, cl- that was kind of outside of the, of the footprint of, of the Crockett promotions, but I digress. Right. <laughs> but they claim to, in the finals, have beaten Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki, which is ludicrous to anybody who knows the history of wrestling because those guys were in two promoters for different companies, All Japan and New Japan, respectively, and just did not let, there's no way in hell they would team up. It would be roughly equivalent to in, you know, 1988 or 1989, claiming to have won the tag team titles by beating Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. (laughs) Well, there was that one ECW pay-per-view where Mike Awesome, a WCW contract wrestler, dropped the ECW title to a WWF contract wrestler named Taz. But I mean, that's, right. <laughs> that's another episode that we could go over. You know? <laughs> right. And that was before Vince owned ECW. Now, he- the interesting, interesting thing on that on Anoki and, and Bob at that time, of course, this would change later. At that time, in 82, New Japan, which was Anoki's group, was actually in a working agreement with Vince and was doing talent exchange with Vince's father. Because this is right before Vince, Vincent K. McMahon bought the company. And... All Japan, the Baba Group, was the NWA affiliate. So any 
buddy that was being booked from the United States through the booking office in St. Louis where the NWA's headquarters were, and Larry Madison and Jim Barnett were the guys doing that booking, they would have sent them to all Japan, not to New York. Right. Of course, one but a few years later, that would switch, and all Japan would kind of become its own thing and wouldn't really deal with anybody in North America, and New Japan would switch its allegiance to the NWA. But you know, once again, another episode for another time, right? Right, right. So the main feud that Sarge and Don had over the now NWA World Tag Team titles was against Rick Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. Of course, young baby faces, good-looking guys. This is shortly after the time, I think, Paul Jones had turned on Ricky Steamboat. So, yep, yep, the, yep. They were they were the tag champs before. Right. right. Good and, tag team. Good baby face. And this feud, which lasted for several months in 1983, this led to literally one of the most famous matches in history, which was when Steamboat and Youngblood finally won the titles from Slaughter and Kernodal. I think it was a cage match. But, in a um, cage match, March 17th, 1983. And the other stipulation on top of it being a cage match was that if Steamboat and Youngblood lost, they would be forced to break up as a tag team, which is a stipulation that's been done to death since then and almost never gets enforced. But that, <laughs> that was a very big deal at the time. This beloved tag team might be forced to disband. Only, of course, uh, Steamboat and Youngblood did win, beat them in a cage, and... I think shortly after that is when they lost them to the Briscoes, and then they won them back at the first Starcade, if I'm thinking correctly. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, yes, that's yeah. right. But we'll get to that later, because that, that's really dealing more with Don. We'll get to the lineage of the belts later. Right. But th- that match, I remember as a kid, we've talked at length about that awesome shirt that Greg Valentine wore in the late 70s that was like, he obviously just went down to a t-shirt shop and had him make that shirt that said, I broke Wahoo's leg. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how much we loved it. Kernodal had a shirt made similar that he would wear on television and at house shows leading up to that match. It would just said March 17 on it. <laughs> That's how much it meant to him. They really did a good job, D- Dory Jr. did, at building up the heat to this match. And we as fans were just ravenous and, and wanting this match because they did such a good job of, of Kernodal and Sarge dastardly and skullduggery keeping the belts away from this beloved babyface team of Youngblood and Steamboat. And Steamboat already had the, the sympathy because he had essentially lost the belts because of the chicanery of Paul Jones turning on him. So it was very well done. And Kernodal had, had said on record that the zenith of his career was that night on March 17th, and he didn't even win. It was him losing the titles, you know? Mm-hmm. The heat was so huge for that match, they actually shut down the interstate like five miles back from the exit to the Greensboro Coliseum. Think about that. This is a major interstate that's like six lanes, three lanes each way. And they shut it down both ways for five miles because it's so much of a backup trying to get in the building to see the match. That's unfathomable by today's stage, isn't it? Absolutely. And we talked about it on our first episode with Mike Mooney when we talked about the first Star Kid, that it was that match, because if you look at the date, March 17th, 1983, there had always been a history of successfully running big shows in Greensboro. It was the biggest building in the territory. It was often the building where they would bring Andre the Giant in when they got Andre, when they just have a huge house. This was the one that makes Crockett, Jimmy, Jim Crockett Jr., realize Whoa, if I put the right card on, I can do a mega show in Greensboro every year and make boatloads of money. And that's essentially what made him greenlight Starcade later that year on Thanksgiving night of the same year. So 
the idea or at least the the gumption of a promoter to actually even try what we now know as pay-per-view and the supercar, which is a standard and regular in pro wrestling now, we can definitely say that, that a lot of that falls on the shoulder of those four gentlemen and how well they did that match. Don't you agree in that, in that buildup? Definitely, yeah. I mean, and I remember as a fan, it was a big deal because you got to remember with this being not having live television and being syndicated, when they would have a big match, it would often be out from that match when we would finally see it on the syndicated show in your local market if you weren't in. And I wasn't in the Greensboro market. That was 200 and some odd miles away from me in Greenville. So two weeks later, here comes walking out to talk to Bob Cottle, Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamer, and they're carrying the world titles. I'm a, I'm a 12-year-old kid, and I'm cutting backflips in my, in my living room. That's the way it was. Hmm. I, I miss some of the charm of that. That's something, as much as I love the live stuff, and, and, and there's some charm to that, that, that being made to wait. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like Tom Petty said, the waiting's the hardest part. Waiting is the hardest part. What does Cornette always say? You can't miss me if I don't go away. Well, right. I think that this is kind of the same concept, just in reverse. So, yeah, that, that, but that leads to later them losing the belts to the Briscoes, like you said, Jay and, and Youngblood. And the massive amount of begging it took Jack Briscoe to convince Dory Jr. to turn them heel so they could feud with Youngblood and Steamboat, which, of course, would go on to be the semi-main event at the first Starcade, which I still stand by as one of the greatest tag team matches. Of- mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. You, you got to understand the Briscoes were huge baby faces here in the Carolinas. And, you know, I've heard Jerry and Jack both say, wasn't that hard because we, as you've liked to point it out off mic to me, if you go back and watch the Briscoe matches from that era, they were already starting to do the subtle heelish things, right? Right. But it's also a testament to how over Steamboat and Youngblood were as baby faces that they could take these long running baby faces and turn them heel in this territory. So Jay and, and, and Ricky now have the belts. That leads to the next big part of Cronodal's. Do you want to talk about that a little bit now? Yeah, because uh, a lot of people don't really know this and that. Around the same time Slaughter went to WWE, uh, that Cronodal also went there. But they didn't appear as a tag team. Essentially, Slaughter was one of the top heels and part of that unholy trinity of managers that were vying for Bob Backlund. And Cronodal really was, he certainly wasn't what they would call a jobber. But, you know, he he would win the show, the matches that are on, like, the syndicated TV and stuff. he was a lower card guy. Right, right. He, he, He was nowhere near as high up on the card as Slaughter was. So he really didn't spend that much time. I mean, he, he probably had a few big wins here and there, but he had actually left the promotion to go back to Jim Crockett probably, I think it was by the, by the end of that year, maybe early the following year, I want to say. Yeah, it was 84-ish. And, all, mm-hmm. and another important part to all this, around the same time as when Dory Jr. leaves his booker and Dusty is brought in. Right. This is important, too, because we'll explain why that's important, but go ahead. So upon his return to Crockett Promotions in the Carolinas, Cronodal formed another tag team, this time with Bob Orton Jr., of course, Randy's dad, and Mm -hmm. they had the management of Gary Hart. And shortly after that, Ivan Koloff came along. And I don't know how long Cronodal and Orton were together as a team. I don't don't recall there being a, a big split or anything. Maybe there was, but... Uh, and this was in that time in between Gary Hart leaving Dallas, where he had started that successful Freebirds Von Erichs feud. Mm-hmm. That was kind of on the down low. He leaves it for a while, comes here to the Carolinas, and then goes back and gets into Texas. But anyway, go ahead. So, in short, Cronodal starts teaming with Ivan Koloff, and they have this anti-American 
stable because, of course, it was the 80s, again, Cold War. Whenever we talk about the 80s and Russia and stuff like that, it just that's just kind of how the vibe was back then. And shortly after the team with Ivan, they bring along Nikita Koloff, and they claim that he was Ivan's nephew. And my understanding is that Kronodal at least was partially responsible for that happening. Right. Well, this was just one of my favorite angles from that era. And of course, you know, rose-colored glasses, we're talking my youth. I've never seen them do this before, and I've never seen them do it since, but I thought it was amazing. Obviously, when he's, he's tagging with Bob Orton and Gary Hart's their manager, it's not hard to understand. They were heels, right? You just have to look at Gary Hart. He doesn't have to start talking, and you know right. he's a heel. We're less than a year removed from Bob Orton and Dick Slater taking the damn money from Harley Race trying to injure Ric Flair, right? So he's turned heel, too. But much like when we talked about the, the first Great American Bash, because you have the Russians and the emotions were so deep with that, you could take an American heel wrestler or tag team and put them against the Russians. And by default, the Americans became the baby faces, even if they were dastardly. USA, USA. Exactly. America. And that's kind of what's going on here with Ivan and a of tag team. So they do this angle. And this is also around the time Don's floating by himself because Bob leaves the territory to go up to vince and we know where bob winds up around that time with vince the first wrestlemania right mm -hmm. and so don's kind of floating without a partner he's been a, a major player in the tag team division for several years now and he's been in this on again off again feud with ivan koloff and they do this angle where he comes out and cuts a promo and the thing about don's promo don falls into that same category that we talk about all the time with like bret hart and wahoo where they were not this charismatic over-the-top promo like a Lawler or a Flair or a Dusty, but it was an effective promo. Yeah, it, it was believable. believable. Yeah. Yeah. And so he basically cuts this promo where he invites Ivan to be his partner, but he doesn't turn on the U.S. He's still a proud American. He's still playing off the sentiments of the military vibe he had with Slaughter, and he'd always presented himself because of his collegiate background as this all-American kind of boy. And he basically cuts this awesome promo and, I, and I've tried to find it on YouTube, and I'm going to keep looking. If we find it, I'll give it to Seth so we can include it in the show notes, where he basically says, it's just a it just makes sense, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the greatest tag team wrestler that America has, and Ivan is the greatest tag team wrestler the Soviet Union has. So it mm -hmm. only makes sense for these two superpowers to unite. How unstoppable would they be? Right. And he never says... He never does like Slaughter would do years later with the Iraqi. He never becomes a sympathizer or a believer in the enemy of the United States. He still very passionately believes in the United States, and Ivan still passionately believes in communism and the Soviet Union. It's just this mutual respect and that they can be unstoppable together. What a novel but awesomely done concept. And you, you want to call Don a turncoat, but he wasn't. He still wears the red, white, and blue and carries the American flag to the ring. And Ivan still wears the red and gold and carries the Soviet flag to the ring. They're never denouncing their individual ideologies or, or, or spatting upon their individual nations. They're just uniting. And, of course, they're doing things that are questionable, so they're heels. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. You don't remember that angle. Can you not see what I'm saying? How, 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 what a cool concept that is? Because it's, it's such a trope for it not to be. Right. I think the closest you might be able to have, and it's a stretch, admit, but it's the first thing that came into my mind was when Bret Hart was doing the Canadian stable, where it wasn't necessarily that he was anti-American as much as he was pro-Canada. Right. Does that make right. sense? I mean, and even there, yeah, like, yeah, Brian Pillman, who's an American, was in that group. 
I, I guess another way you could look at it, also WWF related, would be when Davey Boy and Lex Luger formed that alliance. They call themselves the Allied Powers or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that made more sense because Britain and America, ever since we got over the revolution, have been allies ever since mm-hmm. with very similar like-minded ideology. So this is two diametrically opposed ideologies in the middle of a Cold War and two wrestlers who were supposed to represent be personifications of those ideologies uniting and never betraying each other. And, and just what sold me as a fan is that whole line of I'm the greatest tag team wrestler, American tag team wrestler in the world today. This is the greatest Soviet tag team wrestler in the world today. How unstoppable would we be if we unite and use our powers together instead of fighting each other? Right, Look, right. I'm mm-hmm. sold. That, that To me, that's, that is the epitome of believable and convincing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like, I don't know. You take you take the, the 86 Bears and the, I don't know, the 52 Packers, two of the greatest teams in the history of the NFL. Everybody, I don't even tell you, Packers and the Bears hate each other, right? Right, right. That's the big rivalry. But, that, but that's, that, that's basically Mike Ditka getting with, getting with Vince Lombardi and saying, hey, we're unstoppable. Let's, let's unite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's like, right, right. And then you're as a fan of football going, whoa. I get Mike Ziggletary. Playing alongside Ray Nitschke? Yeah, I don't want to get hit by either one of those guys. So Don and I think it's Nikita win the tag titles. Uh, that they was, did. I, yeah, but then when they lose the titles, the Russians actually turn on Kernodal, and this really begins his only babyface run that he had. But he would go on to, I think it's the corner of the Rock and Roll Express when the Rock and Roll Express win the tag titles in the cage at the Starcade 85, right? Right, when they we beat the Russians. Mm-hmm. This is, remember we said earlier, that, that we would come back to when Dusty got the book, this is that time. Dusty does not see in Don what Dory Jr. did. And he effectively used Don in a good way, understanding, coming in, seeing this, this long-running feud that Ivan and Don had. So, so, yeah, putting them together, that's Dusty. That's smart, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding Don's perception in the fans' eyes as a top tag team guy, Dusty plays on that. And he uses Don as part of the way that he brings Nikita in. And we've said before, at least I know I have and you've agreed with me, that Dusty's building of Nikita as a monster four menace heels is the is the textbook way of how to do it. That that right. particular trope. And Don's part of the initial of that. He's with Ivan when Nikita comes in. He's this amateur wrestler that has this great amateur background, playing off Don's promo about the greatest American tag team wrestler in the world today. So you're thinking, oh, Nikita's learning all the tricks that Russians and the Americans have, you know? Mm-hmm. But this is all along, I don't think Dusty ever planned for Don to be a main event guy. This was also his way of phasing him out. And he winds up putting himself and Raging Bull Manny Fernandez over Don and Ivan for, for the tag team. And then transitions to them, himself and, and, and Manny, losing the belts to Ivan and Nikita. And by this time, you've turned on heel and you're beginning to phase them out. And then here comes Midnight's and Rock and Roll and the Road Warriors. And the whole landscape of tag team changes in the Crockett promotion. And it's not hard when you look at Dory Jr., look at Dusty and how both of them booked and their, their individual careers, why it was that way. Dory, legitimate amateur football background, played college football at West Texas State, known as a shooter. His father was a shooter. You could see him being attracted to a guy like Don Cronodal, a guy mm-hmm. with a legitimate shoot background, with a legitimate collegiate background, who just looks like a tough guy, because that's what Dory was, right? Right. And then Dusty is more about the spectacle and more about 
the, the salt and pepper on the steak. So you can see where Don is not really the kind of guy that Dusty's be drawn to, but a Nikita Koloff with his look is, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not bashing on Dusty. That happens to change over in Booker's. Each Booker brings his own individual idea of what wrestling should be. And I will never, ever, ever bash Dory Jr. He's one of the greatest personalities both behind and in front of the camera in the history of our business but comparing him behind and in front of the camera to dusty Rhodes is like comparing fire to ice isn't it yeah yeah i think so it's just just different views right but both were extremely successful yeah. and so that's kind of what happened like you said the last major run is he he seconds the rock and roll in the corner of the russian in the cage match at starcade 85 for the titles which they win back because you have to remember like i just brought up Dusty has the belts on himself and Manny. They drop them to, to Ivan and Nikita. Then Ivan and Nikita bring in Crusher Khrushchev, who comes to them from Mid-South and Cowboy Bill Watts. And they start doing the old Freebird rule, where any two of the three can defend the titles. That's mm-hmm. kind of what they're doing. And Khrushchev had already fought the opening match that night, where he had beaten Sam Houston for the Mid-Atlantic title. So you knew it was going to be Ivan in the, in the cage. So Crusher seconds them. And then Don Cronodal seconds the Rock and Roll Express. Because the Rock and Roll Express had beaten the Russians their first night in the territory, where they did something they rarely did at the time, where they won the tag team championship over the Russians on the entire hour-long show, television. And then drop them back to the Russians to set, to set this up. And Don comes to them and says, I know... I helped train Kita. I was partners with Ivan. Let me help you out. And so that was kind of the storyline. Dom was going to help the rock and rolls prepare for the Russian. And at the end of that match, after Ricky and Robert go over, they jump Don. I think it was Crusher does with the Russian chain and busts him open and he blades and he's bleeding on the floor. And then he proceeds to go in and they triple team. I, I, I want to say it was Robert because I think they threw Ricky out of the, out of the cage as well. Get their heat mm-hmm. back, so to speak, right? Right, right. But that was, in the end, the kind of last raw <laughs> yeah yeah you could say it was it was his last high profile program now we were talking about slaughter before uh Kronodal actually wanted to bring slaughter back to the carolinas and do a tag team as a babyface against the russians but like you said by this time dusty was booker and slaughter mm-hmm. in 84 was doing his babyface run in wwe this is when he was at the height of kind of his gi joe uh, baby yeah, well, was a low, well, when did he sign the deal with Hasbro to do the GI Joe stuff? Was it 85, 86? Yeah, I think it was 84, 85. Yeah, so this this being 85, this would, would have been right at the time where Slaughter's doing the whole GI Joe thing. And that would ultimately lead to Slaughter leaving Vince and going to mm-hmm. Vern. Right. Because right. Vince didn't want to share the, the, the merchandise revenue with Hasbro. Right. And so, like you said, Dusty w- had the book at this point. So I think that's really one of the main reasons why Slaughter wasn't brought in, because like you just said, different booker. Slaughter goes on to the AWA that kind of left Don really with not that much to do. Now, he kind of really went into semi-retirement, I guess, after that. He would make sporadic wrestling appearances, wrestle yeah. with his brother and such. But yeah, he, about, th- about that time, his younger brother, Rocky, was like an up-and-coming junior heavyweight. He kind of took him under his wing, but they never really got any traction under as a tag team. And they, they didn't make sense. Rocky, as they got older and they both retired, you could tell they were brothers. But when Rocky came in, he had some cut to him. And he had like a blonde, a bleach blonde mullet and looked more like an 80s wrestler. And like we said, Don looked like this old rugged 70s era wrestler. So they didn't really even look right. I mean, Don always wrestled in like a, a, a singlet or a butcher top. And Rocky wrestled like it, like, like, a, like an 80s white meat baby face. Long mullet, the, the neon colored regular trunks and white boots. And 
And it's kind of hard to get traction when you're competing against Rock and Roll Express, Midnight Express, Dusty and Magnum, Road Warriors, and then you've got Rocky and Don Canodal. Which one of these is not like the others? You know what I'm saying? Right. (laughs) You can see how even as talented as Rocky and Don were, did they really have a snowball's chance in hell of getting over when you had this is your comparison in the tag team division? Right, right. And it was just kind of the MTV generation versus the previous generation. Which one looks more hip? Yeah, yeah. And like you said, I do think, though, personal opinion, just opinion, speculation. If somebody other than Dusty had the book for Crockett at the time, especially if Dory was still the booker, I think they could have talked Sergeant to coming back. And I think him and Don probably could have had a successful run against Nikita mm-hmm. and, and Ivan, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. That's essentially to go back to Jim Nelson. Didn't he work for Vern tagging with Soldat Ustinov doing kind of the same Russian gimmick in AWA? I'm not sure. I'd have to double check that. I think he did. So we've said it before. This is the 80s. If you got the right guys to play the Russians, it always worked, didn't it? Right. Yeah, definitely. And if you did have a Russian, you just got an Iranian and put him with a Russian. You make Freddie Blassie their manager, and (laughs) it still works. Right. So outside of the ring, Don pursued a career in law enforcement, and that really was his main gig. He did do wrestling appearances here and there. And according to what Dave Meltzer wrote earlier this year, it looks like he had open heart surgery probably about 20, 18? F- yeah, 15 years ago or so. But oh, 15 uh, years? Yeah, several years. Maybe he had it twice. But he had gotten a meeting from his doctor, which apparently didn't go very well. Like I said, this is in the uh, Wrestling Observer at the time. And he went home and pulled a gun on himself and ended it that way. And yeah. that's, it's always sad. 71, I believe, 70. Yeah, it's always sad to hear suicides and such really death as a whole but i don't know what would get people that low but i'm no psychologist or anything like that but yeah he did commit suicide earlier this year at the age of 71 and so really his prime career was within about 10 years really the late 70s to mid 80s to the mid 80s yeah but those prime years that he had he, he unquestionably was one of the bigger stars in the territory yeah don to me is like the textbook territory guy Here's a guy that grows up a fan, so much so it motivates him to get involved in wrestling at an amateur level, and then through his toughness and natural athletic ability and just will not give up attitude, becomes a star in his home territory. It's really a really a heartwarming story when you think about it. And he becomes a, a star, and when his star is fading, he doesn't get bitter or mad about it. He just goes into something else, and he goes right back home to Alamance County and becomes Alamance County Sheriff's Deputy. And I, I've met Don a handful of times, uh, never got to know him well. It was more of a, my name is so-and-so, nice to meet you type thing. Some of these some of these bigger shows here in the Carolinas. Always nice guy, gentleman. We had a few laughs. We, we had a nice casual conversation, probably because both of us have amateur backgrounds. Both growing up in this territory, there was automatically going to be a bond. Me admitting to Don that he, I was a fan of his growing up. But he had the look and the feel of the hometown hero, the hometown territory star, and that's what he was. And I do know later in his life, I I did not know until later he had had some heart issues. It did not surprise me because Don had put on a little – he had started to develop kind of a double chin, and he had a little bit of a paunch, which he had a little bit of that when he was wrestling, but not like this. And it's like – I've said it before. I'll say it again. We here in the South have a certain type of cuisine that is really tasty, but not really good for your heart health. <laughs> so, you know, him being a good old North Carolina boy probably wasn't eating right, or at least eating as healthy as one could. And like you said, I'm not a shrink either, so I can't I can't speak to what would motivate an individual to, to do that. But unfortunately, that is what Don did. He took his own life. 
sad from my personal interaction with him. He was a good guy. And from everybody else's response that I know and respect, they, Don was a great guy. So sadly missed. I mean, just another one of those guys from that era of that type that was sadly losing now. They're at that age where they start dying. And I feel like a lot of ways we're not tapping those guys' potential and they're picking their brains as much as we should. And maybe that's because they aren't flamboyant. Like, I definitely think there's a key aspect to the business that relates to the Don Carnotal types. And unfortunately, part of the change in the business to what we have in the, as the product now is because I think we don't pick those guys' brains. But, of course, our condolences here at Classic Wrestling Memories to the Carnotal family and, and, and personal thanks from Crazy Train to a lot of hours of entertainment and inspiration to want to do this crazy thing we call pro wrestling. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Definitely offer my condolences as well. Well, we are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we will switch gears and talk about Del Wilkes, uh, the Patriot to the Trooper, as he, the three names he was known over his career. This is Classic Wrestling Memories, and we'll be right back. Attention all time lords and ladies. This message is being sent by Lady President Romana and the High Council of Gallifrey. Heatville Radio presents Examining the Doctor. Join Mark and Seth as they bring their signature blend of knowledge and humor about everybody's favorite Time Lord, the Doctor. From Hartnell to Whitaker, Examining the Doctor provides episode commentaries for favorite and not-so-favorite Doctor Who stories. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeekvilleRadio.com, or wherever podcasts can be found. You're always knocking the American way of doing things, the way we live. But I'm going to tell you something. Evidently, we do some things right. Because at Monday Night Raw a few weeks back, when I pinched your shoulder to the mat, one, two, three, that happened the good old-fashioned way. I called American justice one-on-one. The American way of life is still the better way. That's a guarantee. All right, we are back. Uh, final segment of the show. We are now going to talk the career of Del Wilkes, who really had a career somewhat similar to... Don Kernodal. Granted, Del Wilkes did appear on a national stage more than Don did, but again, his main period in the ring was over the course of probably eight to ten years, because he did start out as an All-American football player in the University of South Carolina. Actually appeared on a Bob Hope holiday special with his yeah. teammates. That would be USC, would be what they would have been called, right? Yeah, well, well, USC is Southern Cal. They would just be called South Carolina. You okay. remember those days when Bob Hope would have his Christmas special every year? I think it was on NBC. Mm-hmm. And right. he'd always would introduce the first team All-American football team. And all the guys would come out in their journey and introduce themselves. I think that's that, that's on YouTube, I believe, is, is, is Dell introducing himself. Just to understand, once again, a corollary between Don and, and, and Dell. Dell, though younger than Don, also grew up in this territory. He grew up in Columbia, our state capital here in South Carolina, and didn't go far because the University of South Carolina is in Columbia. So <laughs> he played a high school football where he was a highly sought-after recruit at Irmo High School, which is, even to this day, one of the biggest high schools in the state of South Carolina. It is, I don't know how they do it in Illinois, but every state I know of has, like, their, their numbered A divisions in high school. Like, 1A is usually the smallest, and 4 or 5 or 6A is the biggest. Mm-hmm. At the time, the biggest we had in South Carolina was 4A. Now we have 5A. When he went there, Irma was a 4A school, and it was so big that they split it, created another school called Dutch Fork in the 90s, and both of them are still 5A. That's how big the mm-hmm. high school was that Don there that Dell went to. And uh, was like a highly sought-after offensive lineman, big, strong guy, and went on and played at South Carolina 
for historical purposes, just to understand how good a football player Dell was at the college level, he was a consensus All-American at the University of North Car- or South Carolina his senior year. There have only been five players in the over 100-year history of the program, football program at the University of South Carolina, that have been a consensus All-American. One of the most recent of when he uh, attained that honor was the 1980 Heisman Trophy winner, George Rogers. And uh, there was one from the 60s. He became the third, and there have been two since then, one of whom is Jadavion Clowney, who, of course, was a first-round draft choice several years ago. So much like Ron Simmons, one of the more highly decorated collegiate football players to then have a successful wrestling. So I know University of South Carolina is not known. It's, it's, it's not Alabama. It's not Notre Dame. It's not Southern Cal. It's not this historically powerful football program. But All-Americans and All-American, that's, that's a huge honor. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. And a consensus. So you, you, the way All-American is chosen is sports writers vote on it, much the way the, the baseball writers vote on the Hall of Fame for pro baseball, which I know more about being the baseball fan, Seth. Mm-hmm. Consensus means of the, I think it's 80-something journalists that vote on it. All of them voted for it. So to be a consensus All-American is even more impressive. It means that you didn't just make the All-American team because you got more votes than anybody else at your position from the sports writers. It means every sports writer that was on that got a ballot said you were the best in college at that position. Wow. So does that give you an idea of how good a college mm-hmm. football player Dell Wilkes was? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And he was anchoring an offensive line that up until recently when Steve Spurrier was the coach of South Carolina in the late 2000s, early 2010s, was the most offensively prolific uh, team that South Carolina had ever had. So he was leading the way as a blocker for some of the highest, best rushing and passing that that, that school's ever pursued. I cannot stress how good a high college football Del Wilkes was. He was a beast. Now, I'm not really sure what led him to wrestling, but he was trained by Moolah in the late 80s, if I understand correct. Yeah, he, it, was, it was one of those where he was a lot like, like Ron Simmons, like Lex Luger. College career didn't really pan out in the pros. That happens sometimes. Right. Well, what happened to The Rock? You know? mm-hmm. And he did, he did okay for himself, I think, didn't he? Yeah, I, I think so, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. <laughs> NFL just wasn't his calling. <laughs> right. But he actually won his first major title almost immediately after his debut as a pro wrestler. Because around 1990, he appeared in the AWA for Vern under the guise of the trooper. And he had a cop gimmick. He looked like a policeman. He would... Like a like state trooper, yeah. Had right, the Smokey yeah. Bear hat and the mirror shades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd hand out police stars to fans and attention, usually kids. He'd write tickets to his fallen opponents after he's won the match. Total the heels, yeah. 80s, early 90s cheese factor. But he and DJ Peterson defeated a team called the Destruction Crew, which you may not recognize that name if you're not familiar with the AWA. But that in real life were Mike Enos and Wayne Bloom, who spent a couple years in WWE as the Beverly Brothers. Bo and Blake. What a terrible gimmick for two guys that are legit tough guys. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, it was a gimmick that was so not them, you might say. But, and I think yeah. I think at that time the structure crew would have been managed by uh, Dallas Page, and he first got in the business as a manager, right? Might have might have been, yeah. Yeah, it, but back to back to Dell's training before we get going too far into his career. Mm-hmm. Dell, being a native of Columbia, going to college there, football career doesn't work out. Well, where's Mula based out of? Carolina as well, right? Columbia. Wow. And Mula had just recently started training men. Those who are regular listeners of Classic Wrestling Memories will know that my trainer was a man named Philip Newkirk, wrestling named Bubba Kirk. Bubba was in the first class that Mula trained of men. She had never trained men before 1985, and she trained 
Bubba and a guy named Johnny Ziegler and a guy named Big Al Navarro and a guy named Al Kinsey. And I think there was like five guys in that first class of males. Fast forward three and a half, four years to 88, 89, when Dell starts training because his pro football career doesn't work out. Like a lot of guys, there is no UFC at the time. He's a big, jacked-up athlete. Wrestling just kind of makes sense because he's, he's been an athlete all his life. Mm-hmm. Growing up here, being a fan of it, like I said, being in the Carolinas, in the Mid-Atlantic Territory. And by that time, Bubba was living in the Columbia area. His father was running a local bar that Mula would run small shows on. And she had turned over the in-ring training, teaching him how to bump and run the ropes and lock up and that stuff, to Bubba. So who do you think taught Dell all his basics? Bubba's Same guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is exactly why me and Dell later on developed a friendship. We were trained, essentially trained by the same guy. Mm-hmm. All that stuff, we were taught by the same guy. And I remember at one point in my career, uh, a promoter that had just seen me on tape and, and had booked me, he, after the match, he said, "He said you, the way you took that bump and sold it, that kind of reminded me a little bit of the Patriot. And I mm-hmm. said, huh, wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's one thing I learned in the wrestling business. If I knew who had trained someone, I could see similarities in the basic foundational parts of wrestling, the bumping and how they ran the ropes by everybody that was trained by that person. Look at all those Tennessee guys, you know, the Jeff Jarrett's and Ricky and Robert and all those guys that went through Memphis and that, that Tojo trained. Look at all those guys that came from Florida that Hero trained. Go, you'll never be able to watch them again and realize, oh my gosh, there is some similarities there to how they take bumps and run the ropes and take a hip toss and those basics of wrestling. Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to go off on the rails. <laughs> Now, if you know your history of the AWA, this was really literally the final months of the AWA's existence mm-hmm. because they actually never lost those titles and the belts just wound up being retired because the company folded. So right. shortly after the AWA closed up, Del Wilkes went to Texas for global championship wrestling. And I did, I did see some of his work here because I watched a little bit of global back in the day. When, GWF global wrestling federation. Right. Right. Yeah. Which was of course based out of the sportatorium, much like the old world class was. That was and, of course, Joe Pettacino from Atlanta's kind of brainchild. Right. Right. He, he, I think he was just attempting to bring back some of the feel of the old world class shows. Right. right His right. original booker was Bill Eady, but that didn't last long. But I don't think either one of us need to go into further detail of our respect for Bill Eady either. So. Right, right, absolutely. But this is where he started what would become his most famous gimmick because he donned a mask, it was decked out in red, white, and blue, and became the character of the Patriot. And he was actually the inaugural television champion for Global. And really, I couldn't say he was, he was the top star, but he was one of them. And, oh, he was one of the top guys for sure. Yeah, yeah, and... Shortly after he won that television title, another masked guy comes along who is the Dark Patriot. So you kind of have the Undertaker, fake Undertaker thing going on. And that, and that was of course, their was big... Doug, Gil- Doug Gilbert under a hood. Mm-hmm. Because Eddie Gilbert got the book for a while there after Bill left. And, of course, Eddie's going to bring his brother in, right? Right. And he would cut those Tennessee-style promos under the mask where he was the, the dark mirror reflection of all the white meat baby face things that Dell wasn't. To, to go back to his AWA run, we were missed if we didn't bring this up. Dell always had a great physique. He had Lex Luger, Rick Rude, Kerry Von Erich kind of physique. Very defined, very cut. And being a college football player in the mid-80s, he would be very candid about it later in his life that 
He was a steroid user. That was just normal for top-level athletes in that era. They weren't illegal yet. You didn't need a doctor's prescription. They weren't testing for them yet. Yeah. I don't even yeah. think in the NFL, let alone college football. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. They just it didn't. Was, they didn't. What would be the word? Regulate or pay as much attention to them as they do now. Right, right. It was looked upon in that era as the same as having a proper diet. It was just part of your training regime. And so Dell talked about he got into steroids in college at the University of South Carolina. And he always had, like I said, had this extremely defined and cut look. And I believe that, that Moolah tried to get Vince to sign him originally. And Vince lo- loved his look because he has that he had that look Vince likes. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. As far yeah. as big, big cut guys. Yeah. Right. But Dell, and I'm not speaking ill of, uh, of the dead, facially Dell, I mean, he wasn't an ugly guy, but he kind of had like a very pronounced chin, like, like a Jay Leno type. He kind of had wavy, dark hair. I don't think facially Vince liked him. That's my opinion, right? And so then Mula quickly switched to Vern, and Vern was looking for anybody that was new because, like you said, the AWA was dying. It was on life support. And I think Vern had learned his mistake by not pushing Hogan and losing Hogan to Vince that maybe there was something to these big muscle-bound guys because by this point we're talking 90. This is So Hogan's been on a, the top guy in business for, what, five, six years? Mm-hmm, yeah. Warriors, a big star at this point. Rude, the Road Warriors. I think Vern, not because he wanted to, but by force of necessity, said, I need to get some of my own muscle-bound guys. And all those other guys that I just named, they all were signed to big contracts. So Dell, being a, a rookie and just wanting to get exposure, probably was within the, the, the price bracket that, that Vern was willing and could afford at the time. Don't you agree? Yeah, yeah, it would make sense. That's a lot of that speculation on my part. I do know about Mula trying to get Vince to sign him and Vince saying thanks, but no thanks. And then her moving to Vern, say, hey, Vern, sign this kid. I think he's got potential. So, but that's half speculation, half. I do know what I'm talking about, the point of view on right. why he went from AWA and then wound up in global. Right. And he did make some appearances for WWF at this point, because like you said, he, he had that type of body that McMahon would like, but he wound up going to Japan, working for All Japan, and he formed a team with Jackie Fulton, which would be the Patriot and the Eagle. I believe Fulton was also wearing a man. And they won the tag titles and feuded with Doug Furness and Dan Crawford. And Dan Crawford had an alter ego in the States, I think. Dan Crawford was just the name he Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Phil LaFon, which was yeah. the name he used here, was actually his real name. He's a French-Canadian. Yeah, okay. And that, that, would, that would make sense because LaFon probably would be a difficult name to pronounce uh, in Japan. I'm not saying that to try to be funny or anything. It's just, and uh, and Doug Furness is another one of those that we unfortunately is no longer with us, but he's another one of those all was like a second team, all American football player at university of Tennessee, who was also jacked. I've said it before. Doug Furness, especially with his body type has one of the most impressive drop kicks I've ever seen. Oh yes, absolutely. You, I think with Doug and especially with Dell, we've talked about before. It's kind of what makes Kurt angle extremely amazing. When you think about it, is that a lot of guys that come from a football or amateur background are very stiff and rigid in their movement. They don't naturally have that flea that we need in the wrestling business. Mm-hmm. And they especially come from that shoot background where you don't sell anything. You don't show any weakness, even if you are hurting. So for them to adapt the world of pro wrestling and what it takes to be a successful pro wrestler is often difficult for those guys. And so I think that was a problem with Doug and a problem with Dell is that they were these big jacked up guys who came from amateur football backgrounds who just did not have Luger. You've heard Barry talk about how Luger could be kind of klutzy when he first started too and busted him wide open by accident, mm-hmm. just trying to sell. So right. 
I'm not taking anything away from any of these guys' athleticism. Look at how jacked up these guys were. It's obvious they can throw up the heavyweights, but they mm-hmm. are they are they are gym rats and way stronger than I've ever been. But I think you understand what I'm what, I, what I'm trying to say, and I and I think that style in Japan, where there's not as much an emphasis on the show that we have in North America, but it's more about on just like raw athleticism, and especially a nation that does not have genetically very large people. Large Americans always do well over there. And being a little bit stiff, being a little bit snug, being not quite as fluid in your moments is not necessarily a detriment over there. Actuality, especially the way Baba booked, was almost a plus, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I can see why Dell went over there and immediately became a star. And Jackie, for reference, Jackie, of course, is the younger brother of Bobby Fuller, one half of the Fantastic. And when Tommy Rogers kind of wanted to semi-retire, Jack or Bobby went over to Japan to work for All Japan, but still wanted to tag. So he just brought his kid brother Jackie along, and they were the new Fantastic. But then when Bobby came back here to the States, Jackie, who was always a little bigger than Bobby, he wanted to stay, but the fans knew he was, so they put a mask on him, and there you go. You know, the Patriot and the American Eagle. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So after the run in All Japan, Del Wilkes comes back to the States. He gets hired by WCW in 1994 and forms a tag team with Marcus Alexander Bagwell. This is a couple years before he was Buff Bagwell. They were Mm -hmm. stars and stripes. Again, the whole Patriot thing, red, white, and blue, All-American boys. They they had a run. It really was only a couple months that he was there. This is going by memory here, but I remember them Mm -hmm. having a tag feud. I don't know if it was the Nasty Boys, but I know they, they held the titles at least once, but they had them not very long. Mm-hmm. They might have even had them twice. But right. and, really, And, you, of course, Marcus and, and, and Dell, they go back to global. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Dell gets Bagwell his first national was the, the, the handsome, handsome stranger. stranger. Yes. You know, um, mid-card, white meat baby face, kind mm-hmm. of this Romeo Casanova kind of gimmick where he come out with like a, a Harlequin mask on and pass out roses to the ladies in the crowd. So he's a mid-card baby face, and, and Dell's the top baby fan in the territory. Mm-hmm. So uh, they weren't unknown to each other. Right. I guess what I was, was what I was wanting to point out. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. So they form a team for a couple months. They they hold the titles, and Patriot just kind of quietly quit the company. I don't think there was ever any on screen explanation. He just w- one day Bagwell's just started teaming with I think it was Scorpio next because Bagwell had like championship runs with like three different partners around this time I as a baby face. I can't verify this, and I'm going off memory as well, but I do believe that that was one of those situations, much like with the Canoodle, where there was a switch in Booker and the new Booker just didn't see anything in a masked wrestler in 94. And so... Right. So he goes back to All Japan, again forms a tag team, this time with Johnny Ace, who, of course, long before he became uh, John, John Laronitis. Yeah, this is back Well, actually, he... he was John Laronitis since birth. <laughs> right. But, but I digress. Know, yeah, Johnny Ace had the, the bleached mullet and the, the surfer look and such. Just a Brian Bosworth-looking guy, you might say, in his prime. And he was also big, big, buff American guy. Right. He is one of those guys, because obviously his brother was Animal. and But the, you talk about brothers that didn't really look alike, and they didn't really wrestle alike either. <laughs> so, no. Well, gosh, Vince, why, why are you going to talk like that, Seth? I, uh, I was a pretty good wrestler. Yeah. <laughs> That's my John Laronitis impression. <laughs> I still think one of my favorite pictures of John Laronitis, I don't want to get off topic, of course, but there was a picture of CM Punk <laughs> giving him the GTS, and he has Laronitis uh, up on his shoulders. And mm-hmm. John Laronitis, once again, he's showing no expression in his face. He's looking like he's just kind of looking at himself in the mirror or something like that. Like, 
totally devoid of any fear, but also of any thought whatsoever. It's like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get beat up. <laughs> so, and, and, and you wonder why Shane Douglas couldn't get over with him as a tag partner, but then he can stay sticking with Ricky Steamboat and he does get over. Yeah. <laughs> poor poor right. Shane. Shane is charismatic. <laughs> And I, I, I hate watching those matches. If you go back and watch the dynamic dudes, Shane is, man, he is working his tail off trying to get mm-hmm. over. And Johnny's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And if you only saw Shane Douglas from his ECW run and later, or even if you saw him as Dean Douglas, the thought of him as a white meat baby face was like laughable. But the first couple of years That's of his career, he was, for, he was a white meat their, baby face. Cow, cowboy yeah. in UWF and, and then, you know, and then, and then in WCW. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, he also starts teaming with Kenta Gabashi, legendary Kenta Gabashi, and for a while they were kind of allied. I, I don't know if they had a collective name as, as a three-man team, but that was very briefly, and then Patriot went back to the States, and this is the start of his probably his biggest money run, which would have been a quick main event slot as the Patriot, and he had the feud against Brett the Hitman Hart. This was when Bret Hart was doing the kind of anti-American pro-Canada stable with the Hart Foundation, with Brian Pillman and, and, and all that. And as right. a lot of fans who were watching in this era remember vividly, Patriot was using the theme that would go on to become Kurt Angle's theme a few years later. And it was very fitting for the character. Right, right, yeah, because it ha- kind of had that sports feel to it. Cornette did a tribute to Dell on his podcast right after Dell passed away. And he talked about that bringing in Dell from Japan. It made sense because Brett was getting over with his anti-American rhetoric as a heel. But every baby face they had at the time who was American was a character baby face. It was Undertaker. It was Steve Austin. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was, well, let's find a white meat baby face that can represent America, right? Right. And Dell is... He's the freaking patriot. He's the, he's the textbook white meat mm-hmm. baby face of all American, isn't he? Oh, oh, yeah. And Cornette intimated that there was a lot of reluctance, not so much by Vince, but by a lot of his underlings. I think specifically he threw Kevin Dunn under the bus, no surprise. If you know Cornette's feelings toward Kevin Dunn mm-hmm. and Vince Russo, also if you know their, that, that relationship, no surprise. They didn't understand how you were going to put a mask guy over as a baby fan. Because when we did our tribute to the wrestling one and two, Tim Woods and Johnny Walker, we talked about masked wrestlers outside of Mexico were almost exclusively heels all the time. There were very few masked baby faces. Bullet, Bob Armstrong, wrestling one and two, to a lesser extent, Laser Tron, which was a, you know, a character more than it was a wrestler. Dell was probably the last main event big-time star to be pushed as a main event baby face with a mask. I can't think of any sense then, can you? Right. Obviously, there's uh, Mysterio, but he, yeah, was, Mysterio. he, of course, was around but for years before But he's a Mexican, that. Mexican right. guy. Right. Yeah, you're, when you're talking and about I specifically I American. I don't, count, I don't count Daniel Bryan or Brian Danielson because by, by the time he made it big, he had lost the mask, and he was no longer the American Dragon. He was the American Dragon Daniel Bryan or Brian Danielson or whatever. So, yeah. And I totally agree with Cornette's summation. Look at the guy. We just talked for five minutes about the guy had an incredible body. You can't hide that. And I still think it's one of the coolest. After Mortis, it was probably the coolest mask in that era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to see why. The red, white, and blue stripes, and it had that cool-looking, like, gold eagle that, that, that covered his face. And whether you understand it or not, I would suggest strongly going back and listening to some of Dell's promos. I thought Dell was a great promo. 
especially for a guy with that look wearing a mask. Yeah, he had he had a heavy southern drawl because he was from Columbia, but it was really rah rah, red, white, and blue flag waving. I can believe in that. Yeah, yeah, Jim Duggan I, type promo was like. Yes, yes, but without the that Jim Duggan mm-hmm. had, and Cornette said they put him with to work with them because they just didn't know how to make a guy that looked like that and talked like that. How to how how to how to coach him up on to cut a babyface promo and and Cornette said, are you kidding me? Cornette, of course, growing up on the Memphis territory, that was no problem for him. He had seen Bob Armstrong as a babyface under a mask, you know, as the bullet. So thank God, thank God, there was somebody like Cornette in the WWE at the time. I mean, as brief as as Dell's run was, it probably would have been even briefer if they had had somebody at least knew how to get him over. That you know it. Right. Right. And whatever your thoughts are on Cornette and his opinions, I don't think anybody denies he he doesn't know the wrestling business, and he de- he definitely knows how to cut a promo. Right. So if you're going to have Jim Cornette be your coach on how to cut a promo, I can think of a lot worse coaches to have on promo cutting, couldn't you? Probably uh, several hundred. Yeah, exactly. So I've never asked you what did, what you, this was right when you're really getting heavy into watching wrestling. What were your thoughts on on Dell's run in with Vince during this t- period? I know you're a Bret Hart fan, so that's kind of going to jade you one. Right, right. I, I didn't really see that much of it because I was more of a WCW guy at the time, but I was familiar mm-hmm. with who the Patriot was, and I figured it, it just made sense that if you're going to have an anti-American bad guy, it makes sense to have a pro-American good guy. And that was really the, the extent of it. But uh, Well, then I, let's, let's step back then. Being a WCW guy, what did you think of his run with Bagwell as a tag guy? Sim- similar thing. Like you said, white meat baby face, you know, so... They, obviously, they weren't going to put a mask on Bagwell because he already didn't have him. He he already been seen. He came into WWE. And he was a good, he was a good looking guy. It'd be stupid right. to put a mask over that face. Right, right. Uh, but I I think it was just one of those kind of no brainer things. It, it's yeah. it's a gimmick that would be hard to screw up if you have the right talent. The thing the thing I find interesting, and, and I forgot to mention this earlier during our tribute to Don, both Don and Dell when they were doing their All American Patriotic gimmicks had slightly different finishers, but both called their finisher the Patriot Missile. Dell's played upon his his pro football background where he did that sh- flying shoulder tackle off the top rope, and Don's was a clothesline off the top rope, a flying clothesline off the top rope. But, they, but and we're talking an era when the Patriot Missile was legitimately like, if you turned on the news any time in that era in the 80s or 90s, the Patriot missile was heavily talked about because that was the leading technology for our artillery in the United States with our military at the time. Mm-hmm. So, and, and another interesting thing about Dell was even though he wore a mask and he was called the Patriot, I don't remember them doing it in the global days, but from WCW on, it was always known that it was Dell Wilkes under the mask and that it was this former All-American football player at South Carolina, wasn't it? I remember there even being an article, I think, in the WWF magazine where – Dell talked about how he put the mask on because he became the Patriot when he put the mask on. But without the mask, he was just Dell Will. Almost like Bruce putting on the cape and cowl and becoming the Batman, that kind of thing. You know what I'm right, saying? Right. Do you remember that article I'm talking about? No, no, I don't, I, I don't think I have. Once again, that's kind of unique for a mask wrestler too, isn't it? Where, where it's, it's well known who it is under the mask. They're not hiding it. So. Right. But it, it, it's easier to play the character when your face isn't visible. Right. And not a rag on Dell, because Dell, I consider Dell a friend. And I'll, like I said, early, here in a little bit, I'll, I'll give some of my personal stories about Dell. Dell, this happens a lot. So one that kind of smartened me up to this when she was polishing me up. There are a lot of guys in this who are extremely talented and 
everything from the neck down physically wise they can do but they do not have the facial expressions and that Dell I think fell into that category so in many ways it actually made sense to put a mask on them because it it hides that difference you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. I can do my body and contort it any way I want but if my face like you were talking making that joke about Johnny Ace earlier if it shows no emotion whatsoever it kind of defeats the purpose of all, whatever your body's doing right. part of what makes flair Flair is Flair had all the body motions, but then he had that great face and voice to go with it. No, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it all worked together as a complete package. But if you don't have that, it's there's a disconnect for the fan. Mm-hmm. Well, their face says they're not in pain, but their body says that they're all kinds of contorted and in pain. So I don't think it was a bad idea to put the mask on Dell. And that is not a knock on Dell. Dell is not alone in that deficiency in the wrestling. And in my opinion, just my opinion alone. Outside of his lack of, of, of good facial expression, I think when we talk about those, all those boxes you've got to check to be a wrestler, Dell checked the rest of them. Oh, yeah, definitely. He had the great look, the legitimate amateur ability. He had charisma. He could cut a promo. Other than, than being able what, – what, what is there not? Was right. he as charismatic as Dusty Rhodes? No. Well, how many people in the business have been as charismatic? Not right. many. But Dell was still – there was a lot of charisma. Just, just that body in and of itself, that's a form of physics. It's like, wow, how impressive is that guy? Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry, I cut you off here. We were up to the point where he left the WWF after his brief run with Brett. Right, right. He got an injury, tore his tricep, and he mm-hmm. was released after a few months. This would have been the beginning of 98, really right before mm-hmm. the Attitude Era truly went into gear. And this is really about the time he retired as well. I don't know if it was the injuries mm-hmm. or if he was burned out, because he would go was, on to say for, for years, really up until his passing, that he was at the height of his drug use in these days. He was taking 100 pills a day. He would, and uh, a lot of that was such. from the tricep. Uh, Dell, for years, was very, very honest and open about his addictions. And he had intimated to me and in interviews that a lot of that goes back to what we said earlier with the steroid use. It just became, I think in his own mind, Dell justified the painkillers the same way he justified steroids in the 80s. Oh, it's just part of my training. It's just what I got to do. Mm-hmm. And sadly for Dell, in the, the the early 2000s, that led him down a dark path. Marital problems, tr- law, legal troubles. He, he was convicted of, I believe it was forging prescription. I can't remember what it was, or bad checks or something like that. But Dell was very honest about that. I guess it would be a good time now to move into my personal stories about Dell. Dell got back on the right track, never left Columbia, went back to Columbia and became, I cannot remember the, the manufacturer, but worked at a, a car dealership in the Columbia area and was the leading salesman in the entire Southeast region for that particular manufacturer and lived near his home where he grew up in Irmo, built the home. I think he remarried, if I remember right. But Dell, Dell became very polarizing in his last days because Dell was a conservative politically. He was a born-again Christian, and he was very vocal about both of both in social media and in interview. And that can be polarizing to some people, you know, especially in light of there is a perception that those are the, the problems that Dell had in the past were the kind of thing that conservatives and Christians often rail against. And so I think there was also some people that thought, well, he's a hypocrite. And, and I can tell you from knowing Dell, he wasn't. Dell was very, very honest about his he was very, very honest about he had made mistakes, and I think he was very contrite about it, and I don't think he was proud of them. The reason he shared them publicly, in my opinion, was more of a cautionary tale to anyone who would listen than a 
matter-of-factly, this is just the way it was, or appraising or taking light of, oh, I used to do this, and look at me, I'm still alive. I remember the first time I met Dylan, and this should give you an insight into the kind of man he was and how he perceived the wrestling. Uh, early in my career, this would have been short after his run with WWF, and he was trying to recover from the tricep. He was booked by a promoter that I worked for that did monthly television tapings in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And this promoter had syndicated television in all the major markets up and down the, from Georgia to North Carolina coastal towns. Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Wilmington, North Carolina, all the way up into the Outer Bank. And he would often bring in names. And Dell was one of the names he had brought in. And I had never met Dell before. Of course, knew who he was, had seen him as a fan, seen his run with Brett. And Bubba, who was also booked for this promoter, mentioned, hey, you know, I trained Dell too. Bubba wasn't putting himself over. He was just making a statement. I said, oh, okay, cool. So I was kind of looking forward to meeting Dell because he was going to be one of the first big name national stars I was going to meet. Because like I said, this was like 98. So I'd only been wrestling for like two years. And, and I was friends with Wahoo at that point. I had had my interactions with Stan Hansen, but I hadn't had a lot of interaction with big nationals. And got to the building and, and was looking at the whiteboard. And with this being a TV taping, it was one of those long days. You got there at like noon because we did promos and stuff for the, for the individual local markets for hours before the actual taping began of the matches. And Dell got there about an hour after him. And he walked in. And, of course, I recognized Dell even without the hood on, without mm -hmm. the mask on. And here is the promoter, and here is the booker standing at the door when Dell walks in. And he's the big star that you've got on the poster. Briefly, and briefly shakes the promoter's hand, walks right past the booker. The two guys that are basically controlling his paycheck and how he's going to be presented come straight up to Bubba and gives him a just brushes past Susan Green, brushes past Bill Eady, brushes past Greg Valentine, all these other big stars that were on the show, and the promoter and the booker brushes past all of them and goes straight to the guy who trained and gives him a big warm hug. I think that says a lot about who he was as a person. And and Bubba turned to me and said, this is another guy I trained. Crazy trainer, I would like you to meet Del Wilkes, the Patriot. And he shook my hand and wasn't long after the conversation turned to Georgia versus South Carolina football and both of our histories as football players, and that was the start. From there on, Dell was my friend. He was compassionate. We, we did fall out of touch when he was in those dark times because I think he'd kind of fallen out of touch with everybody's at the time. But as I've, I've stated before, my father's family is in, in the Columbia area. My dad's from Columbia, and Susan lives in Columbia, and Mula lived in Columbia. So I make a lot of tri I have trips to Columbia. It's only an hour and a half away from I think I could literally drive down that section of I-26 in my sleep. I've driven it so much. And Dell was a guy I'd stop to see a lot when I was The dealership he worked at would often be, it was right there off the interstate as you were coming into Columbia from where I, the direction I would come in the upstate. And I'd drive up, and I would get out of my, my, my car, my truck or car, whatever I was driving at the time. And Dell would always see me when I would walk in, you know, the big glass doors they have at dealership, right? And even if he was sitting at his desk, he would see me and stand up and he'd smile. And he'd walk out and he would give me a warm hug and say, so good to see you, brother. How's your family? How are you doing? That's the Dell Wilkes I knew. You know mm -hmm. what? All this controversy that he had over his political views, all this controversy that he had over his, his, his history of drug use and legal troubles, that isn't the Dell I knew. The Dell I knew was a loving, caring man who cared about me. As a person, you know, mm -hmm. would ask me, how are things going? He would give me advice on, 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 you know, I'd say, well, this has happened to me. I remember he intimated to me one time, you know, I remember I asked him, Bubba had the size. 
why didn't Bubba get signed by Vince? He was working for Vince before you did, before you were even training. You know, he was very honest with me about why he thought that was. He wasn't throwing Bubba under the bus. And he would use that as an example of, of how I should have. He was always candid with me. If he thought a promoter was screw, much like Wahoo had been years earlier, if he felt a promoter was screwing me over, he'd tell me. And he's like, here's how you, I, I think you should handle it. I'm not telling you what to do, mm-hmm. but that's the Del Wilkes I knew. Del Wilkes saw me as a brother. He saw me as a brother as, as a football player. He saw me as a brother as a guy who, who was another wrestler. He saw me as a brother because we were trained by the same guy. And not to get too religious, he saw me as a brother because we were both Christians. And he expressed that to me, and I felt that. And, and, and his, I, know, I know that my interaction with Del is his, his door was always open to me. Not just at work. I could have gone by his house, which I did in the past. His door was always welcome to me. There was always been a warm meal there for me. He was only a phone call away. And I know he's polarized. I can't talk bad about it because he was that kind of person. And, and I'll always appreciate what he did for me. I'll appreciate his candor, his honesty. And I think he's highly underrated for what he brought to the business and what he contributed in the last significantly huge financial big time for the business. The fact that he was a masked wrestler with a heavy Southern draw that got a main event push on Vince McMahon's television, I think is the last testament I can give to how good he I never got to wrestle with Dell, but one time, I think maybe twice, we were like in a six-man together on the same team, and then I think we were in a battle royal together. So I can't speak to a lot of his stuff in the ring beyond what I saw as myself as a fan and an observer like our listeners. But as a person, I will never speak. He was a flawed individual. We all were. But he was just trying. And, and I, I think, sadly, the years of drug abuse and steroid use probably contributed heavily to how a guy who, I'm sorry, any way you look at it, 59 is way too young to die, especially of a heart attack. But I'll leave it at that, let you talk about your thoughts on Dell and maybe wrap up his career. Yeah, like, like you said, he, he was open about his drug history. He claimed that he was taking as many as 100 pills a day. That's actually a number I've heard of before from different people, not about him, but uh, not Johnny really Cash. Wrestling. Yeah, Johnny Cash. <laughs> and then in wrestling, Billy Graham, I remember he, he explained, and Cash said something similar, just you know, pertaining to music rather than wrestling, but it's like, you're taking something to wake up. You're taking something to go out and do your thing. You're taking something to calm down after doing your thing. And then you're taking something to go to sleep. That That's how those numbers get so uh, piled up like that. Why, why you wind up taking 100 pills a day. And like you said, the, the, that drug abuse and the, the coke and all that, that's probably what contributed to his untimely death. But as far as what I had seen of his career, really was only probably a couple of months worth. Uh, so a little bit of him in global uh, a little bit of him in WCW, and then that run that he had in WWE at the dawn of the Attitude Era. So I really didn't. You see... You were watching Japanese when he right, was right. I yeah, I I wasn't following Japanese wrestling at all at that point. But I always thought that the guy had something because, like you said, he had a he had a million dollar body. But like I said, at that time, I was more of a WCW guy during the Monday Night War. So there's probably stuff that I missed. And I remember the the after mags talked very highly of him. This is when he was still wrestling. That's really the basis of my understanding of his career was was simply just as the Patriot and in Global and WCW and in uh, WWE. I too did like like we did before about Don Cronin. Condolences, prayers, thoughts to to his family. Uh, he's a man of faith, so I, I would the family can take some consolation in knowing that he's probably in a better place. And there's certainly a lot of stuff that you can find online. One many great things about YouTube and such is you can find a lot of stuff very easily that didn't have access to these. So 
I'll probably look up some of that stuff that he did in, in all Japan. And, uh, unfortunately with COVID protocols, I wasn't able to go to his funeral like I was Moolah's, but I know where he's buried and I mm -hmm. fully intend to get some of the boys together. And we're probably going to go and visit Dell now that things are getting a little more lax. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of classic wrestling memories. We went a lot longer than I thought we were going to. We really got kind of got rolling on that, but <laughs> we are at classicwrestlingmemories.com. If you're listening to us for the first time, we're at the podcatcher of your choosing. We can be found in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. Just do a search for classic wrestling memories. And I've been noticing our Facebook page. Definitely want to thank everybody that's been liking our Facebook page. We've probably tripled our numbers in the last month or two and uh, we're, we're over 500 likes now aren't we yeah yeah and uh, it and there's just a few every day it seems so definitely want to say hey, thank we, you and welcome aboard we get to for... a thousand we might do a drawing for steak night something <laughs> right yeah <laughs> See, special bonus content or something but well yeah and, and as always if you want to drop us a line let us know how we're doing you can respond to any of the episodes at classicwrestlingmemories.com or just drop us a line on the facebook let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. If there's things we could be doing better. If there's something you want us to talk about, really the only cutoff, as we like to say, is really the end of the Monday Night War. That's really the cutoff point for us. And Train, if anybody wants to talk to you about uh, Dark Side of the Ring or Del Wilkes or anything else, where can they find you? Like I said earlier, you can always find me on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. That's pretty much my handle across all social media platforms that I have, have, have an account on. I am also a moderator on the Classic Wrestling Memories Facebook page. I am a moderator on the Examining the Dead Facebook page. We're only, as we record this on the 23rd of September, Year of Our Lord 2021, we're about a week away from October. So our next Classic Wrestling Memories will be a review of one of the Halloween Havocs. We haven't decided which one yet, have we? And I don't think we've uh, put our finger on the specific one, no, but we're definitely going to do one. Well, I think we've narrowed it down to either 89, which was the first one, or was it 94, where the main event was that was uh, Vader, Cactus Jack. I think we've kind of narrowed yep. it down to those two, I think. Probably one of we? those two, yeah. Yeah, so, but, you know, let us know which one would, or maybe another one you'd like us to, but that's, October's always a big deal here at the Geekville Radio podcasting family. Well, I've, I've said before, I don't know why Seth loses his b mind in October and allows me to take over total programming of all the podcasts <laughs> in October, but he does. Inmates run the so, asylum. That's probably a nice little respite for you. Only 11 months out of the year, you got to worry about it, not 12. So <laughs> yeah. that will definitely be our next. Classic Wrestling Memories will be our review of, of, of a Halloween Havoc. But going into November and December, we'll have something else, too. So that's also give us a suggestion. We, we've noticed, by the way, I wanted to end on this. Unfortunately, we have to do a lot of tribute because we're just in that era where a lot of the guys that we grew up being fans of are passing away. That's the, the, the tag team of Father Time and the Grim Reaper are the tag team that have are, and wrestling that have an unblemished record. No one kicks out of those. So we do have to do these from time to time. But we have made a concerted effort and agreement to try to not do those, even with deaths piling up. Every, every episode. We want to do some other things that we've done in the past. So maybe we'll do a tribute with the next one with the one before it being a review of a show. But that that is something we can always do tributes. We can pick any big star from the past, especially ones that have recently passed away, and do tribute shows and retrospects on their careers. Let us know about angles, territories, uh, particular events you want us to review. That's the stuff that we, we really want the, want the suggestions on. Don't you agree? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I like to think of it as 
uh, kind of the selection of series of books or something like that that you might have seen uh, on an infomercial in the early 90s or something like that, you know? Right. Everybody can talk about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but maybe you need to talk about The Voyage of the Dawn Treader or Prince Caspian or something. You know what I'm saying? To use the, right. the Chronicles of Narnia analogy. Right. <laughs> All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode. We'll be up next for Volume 40. Like I said, probably talking a uh, Halloween Havoc. I'm going to shut down the power here in a Classic Wrestling Memory Studios, and we'll talk to you folks again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Uh, of course, you can always find me, uh, like I said earlier, and timestamp because that bus was yeah, really was loud. Really large, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A school bus drove by. Anyway.